All right, let's talk about William Wordsworth. Uh, Wordsworth is one of the key figures in the Romantic poetry movement. Uh, the book that he published along with uh, Coleridge was called Lyrical Ballads, and that came out in 1798, uh, and it was really the, the manifesto for what came to be called the Romantic movement in poetry. And in 1802, Wordsworth uh, and, and Coleridge republished the book, a second edition, and they included an introduction, a preface by Wordsworth, which became the critical manifesto for the Romantic poetry movement. Now, we're not reading the whole thing, but there was one section that I did want to look at. Uh, in the Norton Anthology, it, it, they give the, the little title, Emotion Recollected in Tranquility. So let's go through this. Wordsworth says, I have said that poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. It takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquility. The emotion is contemplated till, by a species of reaction, the tranquility gradually disappears, and an emotion kindred to that which was before the subject of contemplation is gradually produced, and does itself actually exist in the mind. Okay, there is a whole lot of stuff packed into that sentence that I want to unpack a little bit. First of all, Wordsworth defines poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. All right, every word there is significant, I think. Uh, first of all, it's spontaneous, that the uh, a, a poem just kind of hits you, it kind of happens to you. It's a moment that overwhelms you, and it is overwhelming. It's an overflow. Uh, it's something in excess of of what you would, your normal everyday experience, an, a spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Uh, it's not just an overflow, but it's very powerful. And it's about feelings. It's not about the mind. So for Wordsworth and for the romantic poetry that he's talking about here, that's what poetry is. It, it gives now, notice there's an interesting ambiguity here. Does he mean poetry for the writer or for the reader? That is, is it the poet who is having a spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, or is it the reader? Well, I think it's supposed to be both, uh, and that's the thing that's very interesting about poetry. Um, so he expands on this, that poetry takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquility. Now here, and we'll see this with the, the poems we look at today, with the Tintern Abbey and, and others, we, they have this spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, but then they're recollected in tranquility. So you're no longer emotional about it. You're very tranquil, very calm, you're very peaceful, but you can recall a powerful, spontaneous overflow of emotions that you had. And he says, the emotion is contemplated... You know, you think, sit there and you think about it, till by a species of reaction, the tranquility gradually disappears. So you kind of, it's almost like, you know, method actors who kind of, they, they, they think themselves into, you know, if I was, think back to a time when I was afraid and I'll remember that and then I'll actually feel afraid. That's kind of what Wordsworth is doing here with poetry. 
And so the, the tranquility goes away as you contemplate, the remember that emotion. And an emotion kindred to that which was before the subject of contemplation is gradually produced. So you actually recreate that moment of spontaneous, powerful feelings. That's Again, that's both what the poet does and presumably what a reader does as well. So that's the, the core, that's the essence of poetry. And those phrases, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings and emotion recollected in tranquility are two of the most uh, resonant, important phrases in literary history. They came to define a certain way of thinking about poetry. But Wordsworth goes on, he says, that but the emotion of whatever kind and in whatever degree from various causes is qualified by various pleasures. So that in describing any passion whatsoever, which are voluntarily described, the mind will upon the whole be in a state of enjoyment. Okay, so here's now another thing about poetry. It's not just, oh, it's emotion and I feel emotion, but they're all of what these kind of various pleasures. He says that the, the, you, there's an enjoyment when you're describing any passion, and he says that the poet ought especially to take care that whatever passions he communicates to his reader, those passions, if his reader's minds be sound and vigorous, should always be accompanied with an overbalance of pleasure. So there are two elements of poetry. There is the passion and the pleasure. And the pleasure is important. That's kind of what the makes the poet a poet, is that, that not just they have a feeling and they're talking about it, but they find a way to express it in a way that's pleasurable. It says, now, the music of harmonious metrical language, the sense of difficulty overcome, and the blind association of pleasure which has been previously received from works of rhyme or meter of the same or similar construction, an indistinct perception, perpetually renewed of language closely resembling that of real life, and yet, in the circumstance of meter, differing from it so widely, all these imperceptibly make up a complex feeling of delight, which is of the most important use in tempering the painful feeling which will always be found intermingled with powerful descriptions of the deeper passions. So you kind of need the these literary poetic pleasures to balance out the kind of deep, heavy, uh, maybe uncomfortable emotions. And look at the things he, he lists as particular uh, uh, pleasures. Harmonious metrical language, all right? So it's got meter and rhythm, all right? The sense of difficulty overcome. Like when you get to a, a, a puzzling metaphor and then you say, oh, I see what it means. Uh, association of pleasure that's been previously received. So you know, you're used to having this kind of experience with, with other poems, and so you, you see it here. Uh, an indistinct perception, percep perpetually renewed, of language closely resembling that of real life, and yet, in the circumstances meter, differing from it so widely. So he's pointing out that poetic language is very close to normal language, but it's just subtly different. There's a kind of very um, uh, indistinct perception of that. It feels close, but not quite. And that also gives you literary pleasure. And all those together make up that complex feeling of delight, which is an important part of poetry. 
And he ends by pointing out this paragraph, at least by pointing out the difference between poetry and prose. That, you know, two descriptions, either of passions, manners, or characters, each of them equally well executed, the one in prose and the other in verse, the verse will be read a hundred times where the prose is read once. So the idea is that it's not just the, the, again, it's both the form and the content that has to work. The, the content of a romantic poem are these powerful emotional f- emotions, spontaneous overflow, powerful feelings. But the way it's communicated to the reader is in these delightful pleasures of poetic language, which make it stick with the reader. So all of that is going together to make the uh, the ideal poem for Wordsworth. And this is a, a, a way of thinking that worked with most of the Romantic poets we'll be looking at. All right, now let's look at a concrete example of the kind of poetry Wordsworth was talking about in his very famous poem that is usually called Tintern Abbey, though the actual title is, in one of these wonderful, long-winded 19th century titles, Lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13, 1798. Now, this was the final poem in the book Lyrical Ballads. Uh, The first poem was The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which we'll also be looking at a little later. Now, since uh, Wordsworth was talking about the importance of the delights of poetic language, uh, let me mention that this poem is in blank verse, that it's in unrhymed iambic pentameter. That's the the kind of verse that most of Shakespeare's plays are written in. And it's very close, as he says, kind of imperceptibly different and imperceptibly close to normal speaking language. It's got a, but it's got a constant iambic beat to it. But without the rhyme, it sounds even more naturalistic. So he begins, Five years have passed, five summers, with the length of five long winters. And again, I hear those rolling waters. So, we're automatically set in a particular temporal context. He's, we know from the title where and when he is. And he's telling us, I was here five years earlier, and here I am again. And in fact, you see uh, that phrase, once again, again, once again, that keeps ringing in this first verse paragraph here. Once again, do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs that on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion? All right, so he sees these cliffs and they give the wild scene Uh, a sense of thoughts of more deep seclusion. All right, now think about the the syntax here. These cliffs on a wild secluded scene, that's the scene of nature he's looking on, impress thoughts. Well, who are they impressing thoughts on? I mean, not on the landscape. The the grammar of it literally says they're impressing that on the, the landscape. But that can't be right. They're impressing it on the mind of the poet, of the speaker here. But that's an interesting confusion because it's confusing the inner mind of the poet and the outer uh, with the outer world that he's looking at. That this feeling of deep seclusion is impressed on him, but it's also 
actually there in the landscape. So, you know, whether it's in his mind or in the world, uh, it, it gets blurred together. It's the same thing. He is one with the world in a certain way. And then in the second verse paragraph, he goes from just saying, well, I was here five years ago and it's still beautiful. And he says uh, around line 27, I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensations sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the heart, and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration. All right, so it's not just that he was here and it was nice, but for years he's had, uh, he's had when he was weary, when he was tired, he could remember back on this place. Remember that idea of emotion recollected and tranquility? That's exactly what he's talking about here. He could recollect the, 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 the power and the beauty of this place in times when he wasn't feeling so good. Uh, as his feelings, too, of unremembered pleasures. So even the things that he doesn't remember uh, get, somehow get called up by the, the, the impression that this place left on him. And then he says, line 36, to them I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood, and picks up line 41, that serene and blessed mood in which the affectation gently leads us on until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspend. We are laid asleep in body and become a living soul, while with an eye made quiet under the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. So this is a, a transcendent kind of experience he's talking about, that this serene and blessed mood, as he calls it, where it's not just a physical thing. In fact, the physical body is, is laid asleep. You forget about your, your breathing. You forget about the fact that you're a, a, a physical creature, and you become a pure living soul. You see into the life of things. So this is a very deep kind of, of, of oneness with nature, uh, the one that transcends even the physical parts of nature. So that was how this uh, scene at, uh, around the Tintern Abbey uh, affected him. But then he switches in the poem, and uh, uh, around line uh, oh, 58, and now, with gleams of half-extinguished thought, with many recognitions dim and faint, and somewhat of a sad perplexity, the picture of the mind revives again, while here I stand not only with a sense of pleasant, present pleasure, but with pleasing thoughts that in this moment there is life and food for future years." So now he's in the we're in the present. He's been talking about the past, how he remembers the scene is just like it was. He remembered it, and he tells us how for the last five years he has recalled the scene in his mind and what a blessing it has been. A kind of a transcendent object of contemplation. Now we're back to the present. He's literally looking at the scene, and he says, "But it now I'm not just looking at it and enjoying it." I'm looking at it and enjoying it and anticipating the knowledge that I'm going to feel enjoyment in future years 
because in the past I thought about this and I, I felt this this wonderful transcendence. Now I know uh, seeing it here this time again will be something I can look back on and will uh, make me feel me see into the life of things the way it did before. He says, and so I dare to hope, though changed, no doubt from what I was when first I came among these hills. So he's acknowledging, well, I'm I'm a different kind of person. And he was apparently a much less reflective person. He said, for nature then, the coarser pleasures of my boyish days and their glad animal movements all gone by, to me was all in all. I cannot paint what then I was. So this is, in, in, in some ways, this you could think of this in relation to Blake's talking about innocence and experience. He's looking back, at, uh, Wordsworth is looking back now from a more experienced perspective at his more innocent earlier perspective. And he says, I can't really even describe what I was like then. Nature was everything, uh, so it was all kind of, but it was, seemed to be almost on a purely physical, instinctual level. So back then, he says, I was in line 81, he had no need of remoter charms by thought supplied, nor any interest unborrowed from the eye. That time is past. So back then, again, it was just purely a physical thing. He didn't need to have this thought and contemplation. It was just a pure, sensual, vivid, direct experience. that's uh, That's not there anymore. Uh, and all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. Not for this faint I, nor mourn nor murmur, other gifts have followed. So he says, so he's lost something, but he's also gained something. He doesn't have the kind of, the, the pure, almost animal level of, of, of reaction to nature, but he's gained something else. He says, for such a loss, I would believe abundant recompense. For I have learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the sad, still music of humanity, nor harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. So now what he hears in nature is not just a kind of a purely natural thing. It's what he calls the sad, still music of humanity. So again, this is a more intellectual uh, achievement. This isn't just kind of, of, oh, wow, nature is beautiful. I feel wonderful. And it's also, it's, the, the music is still and sad. And he's, it's not about nature. It's about humanity. So now his communion with nature gives him a, a, a insight into what it means to be a man, what it means to be a person, what it means to be a human being. He says, and I have felt the presence, I, I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. 
All right, now here again, this is something almost mystical and transcendent that he's feeling here. He says, the, 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 it disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts. Again, that kind of contradiction. It's a disturbing joy and something far more deeply interfused. So not just the surface uh, beauties and pleasures of nature, but something deeper than that. Right? A, a, some, a spirit that impels all thinking things. Uh, so he has ha- he's uh, lost that older, more visceral uh, communion with nature, but he's come to a deeper, more profound, more philosophical kind of understanding of it. He says, therefore, am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains and all of that we behold from this green earth of all that the mighty world of eye and ear both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense, the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my mortal being. So here's what nature is to him now. Nature is the anchor of my purest thoughts. Now think about that image. He's talked before about you know leaving almost leaving the body and becoming a, a pure soul, but nature is the thing that anchors and allows that. Paradoxically, it's it's immersing himself in nature that allows him to escape from the confines of the physical world. The, the uh, these are purest thoughts. Again, that kind of contradiction that anchor and pure thoughts. Uh, nature is his nurse. Uh, his guide, the guardian of his heart, and the soul of all my moral being. So again, this is something that is a lot more profound than just, ooh, look at the pretty sunset. Uh, This is a kind of a a deep philosophical understanding of things that he gets from nature. And in the last verse paragraph of the poem that starts on line um, 111, we get yet another turn in this uh, the, the development of his ideas here. It says, Nor perchance, if I were not thus taught, should I the more suffer my genial spirits to decay. For thou art with me here upon the banks of this fair river. Thou, my dearest friend. So now, this is all, before this has all been just him. It, he in the present, he in the past, him thinking about his relationship with nature and how it's changed. But now there's somebody else who has entered into the poem that he's addressing. Thou, my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend, and in thy voice I catch the language of my former heart and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. So now he's seeing his own, not only remembering his own experience when he was young and here before, but literally seeing it with this dear friend that he hasn't yet identified. Uh, and says, so now it's, it's another way of mirroring his ex- earlier experience. Um, oh, yet a little while may I behold in thee what I was once my dear, dear sister. Okay, so now he's talking to his younger sister. 
And he is getting the pleasure of seeing her experience this the way he did when he was younger. Um, this is an experience that, that parents get to have, right? You, you, uh, you do something or see something, and you get your kids to see it and experience it too, and get to kind of remember what it was like for you the first time. Uh, well, that's exactly what's happening here with Wordsworth and his younger sister. He goes on, and this prayer I make, knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her, tis her privilege, through all the years of this our life, to lead from joy to joy. For she can so inform the mind that is within us, so impress with quietness and beauty, and so feed with lofty thoughts, that neither evil tongues, rash judgment, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor greetings where no kindness is, nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life shall e'er prevail against us or disturb our cheerful faith that all which we behold is full of blessings. All right, now that's a very long and a packed uh, part of the poem. But notice also that this, the, the language of religion, this is a prayer to nature, this prayer I make. And also the idea that there is this this common everyday world that fights against these high transcendent things that tries to drag you down. But still, the, the true worshiper of nature knows that all that we behold is full of blessings. Blessings is another very religiously resonant term. It says, therefore, let the moon shine on thee in thy solitary walk, and let the misty mountain winds be free to blow against thee. And in after years, when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, so he's foreseeing that what happened to him will happen to her. These wild ecstasies she's having when she's young and first experiences the beauty of nature will mature into something uh, more sober. He says, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies, oh, then... Now, notice what the, the poem is doing now. It's now casting into the future. We started out where in the, I'm in the present. I'm looking back what it was like five years ago and how the intervening five years have been affected by that time. And, uh, you know, talking about how I have changed. And now I'm looking forward to the future. I'm seeing in myself, I'm seeing myself reflected in my dear friend, my sister, and now I'm imagining her into the future living the way that I've lived my past. It's a very complicated kind of sense of, of being uh, in time, looking forward, looking back, experiencing it all in a single frame of reference. It says, oh, then in solitude or fear or pain or grief should be thy portion with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me and these my exhortations? So he's saying, he's saying that she's, you know, when, uh, just as he found solace in remembering Tintern Abbey when he was depressed, uh, she will too in future years. And then at line 147, he says, If I should be where I no more can hear thy voice, nor catch from thy wild eyes these gleams of past existence. Now, that could just mean that he was not around, or it could mean that he's no longer alive. 
Uh, it's kind of ambiguous about that. But either way, when he's not there to hear her, to hear her voice, to ex- re-experience his life through her, uh, wilt thou then forget that on the banks of this delightful stream we stood together, and that I, so long a worshipper of nature, hither came, unwearied in that service, rather say with warmer love, oh, with far deeper zeal of holier love, nor wilt thou then forget that after many wanderings, many years of absence, these steep woods and lofty cliffs and this green pastoral landscape were to me more dear both for themselves and for thy sake. So here the the you know the meaning of of this natural thing it's not just this is what happened to me and my personal history and now thinking uh, oh and this is going to happen to you too well that creates a bond between the two of us it's not just dear because i had this experience it's dear because we shared this experience because i know you will have the same experience as i did so you know, romantic poetry is often about nature, but uh, with Wordsworth particularly, nature is never the end of it. It's the starting point. And for Wordsworth, again, this is an almost religious experience and also a, a, a one that bridges his loneliness. And, and the poem it begins very uh, kind of ego-centered. It's just Wordsworth alone thinking about his life. And he expands that by thinking about nature. Now it's something bigger than himself. Nature is something grander. But the most important part of that is what he calls the still sad music of humanity. So now it's not just nature, it's it's the human world. And it ends again on that note. Uh, it's not just the uh, my own personal feelings about nature. It's the fact that I'm sharing them with another human being. Uh, and that you will have the same experiences too, and that makes it even more poignant. Now, uh, I think you can see that this this uh, poem really fits what uh, Wordsworth was saying about his idea of poetry. There is a there was a spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. There was that original moment when he was at Tintern Abbey and had this kind of experience of nature that stayed with him for years, that inspired him for years. And that led him to something, but he's had time to contemplate it. He's had that emotion recollected in tranquility. He's thought about it. It's led to a higher, more kind of philosophical understanding. And through contemplation, the original emotion is recreated. He feels the same way again. And in this poem, it goes beyond that. Uh, to showing how the the poet shares that with an audience, in this case, his sister. That Look, I had this experience, and I'm recreating it for you. In exactly the same way that the the poet, the romantic poet, has the experience and creates a poem that will uh, duplicate that experience for their readers. That's what's happening here as well. So the poem is a kind of a, a beautiful illustration of Wordsworth's entire theory of poetry. All right, I'd like to turn now to discuss a, a group of five poems that our uh, critics have called the Lucy poems because they're all about the speaker's relationship with a woman named Lucy. And I'd like to start with the one called 
a slumber did my spirit seal. Uh, now this is written. This is these are uh, all written in different kind of meters and rhyme schemes. This one is is uh, a ballad meter, so it's a, a four beat, three beat, iambic for uh, you know alternating lines and alternating rhymes in the same way. So a slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. Rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. All right. Now, the poem falls very obviously into two parts, right? So there's a before and an after. There's how he felt before. There's how he feels now. Uh, you see, by the verb tense, uh, the slumber did, uh, no motion has she now. All right, so what was it like before? A slumber did my spirit seal. So it was sealed up. He was asleep. He had no human fears. No, you know, he was fearless, you know, and no, and no fears about humans. And she, she's not named here, but it's, it's Lucy, seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. It's just like the, the time ha- doesn't touch her. She's, I, I, and he's saying, I was asleep. I was blind. I didn't see what it was like back then. But now, no motion has she now. No force. She's dead. She neither hears nor sees. And she's, she's become a thing like the rocks and the stones and the trees. Uh, so that that switch from one way of seeing things to a new way of seeing things is embodied in the way the poem is is structured, um, but it's also and very typically for uh, Wordsworth, uh, there's some interesting uh, ambiguities about it uh, when it says she seemed a thing. Um, that's kind of reducing her. That's dehumanizing her a thing that could not feel. Um, so th- it's not necessarily that that time was not a positive time. And her death is not altogether a negative thing. The idea of her being part of nature. I mean, in some ways, that's making her a thing too. But here they seem like living things. Uh, she's with the, she's ro- she's in Earth's rotation. Right, she's with the trees and the rocks. She's part of nature now, uh, so it's uh, it's obviously he regrets her death. But the way the poem is written, it suggests that may, that that is in some ways a transcendent moment for her, uh, that she's no longer just a, a limited human thing anymore. Now let's look at the the first of these uh, Lucy poems. Strange fits of passion have I known, and I will dare to tell. But in the lover's ear alone, what once to me befell. So again, here again, we have the idea of passions, emotions, and they're in the past. Strange fits of passion have I known, but now only to my lover will I I tell what it was like. When she I loved looked every day fresh, fresh as a rose in June, I to her cottage bent my way beneath an evening moon. Upon the moon I fixed my eye all over the wide lea, with quickening pace my horse drew nigh those paths so dear to me. And now we reached the orchard plot, 
and as we climbed the hill, the sinking moon to Lucy's cot came near and nearer still. In one of those sweet dreams I slept King Nature's gentlest boon, and all the while my eyes I kept on the descending moon. So we've got this description. He's, you know, this is the young man who's going out to see his, his, uh, the lady that he loves out in the moonlight to her cottage in the woods. It's all very kind of beautiful and pastoral and uh, romantic in, in, uh, in every way. Um, and his horse going there, and it's all—it's also very dreamlike. Uh, He's—he was almost dreaming on his way to see her, uh, and, and the moon uh, descending over her cottage. My horse moved on, hoof after hoof, and raised and, and never stopped. When down behind the cottage roof, at once the bright moon dropped. So just visually, he's seeing—he's following the moon, and he gets to a place where the moon is now hidden behind where her cottage roof was. What fond and wayward thoughts will slide into a lover's head? Oh, mercy to myself, I cried, if Lucy should be dead. Now, of course, that's a... uh, This is interesting. This is a kind of moment that I think a lot of people have, these kind of weird thoughts come into their mind. They suddenly think about somebody you haven't thought about in years or you're, you're worried, hey, did I, did I, wait, did I leave the stove on? Um, those kinds of things that just pop into your head that are un, um, uh, unmotivated, it seems. Um, and for him, it's particularly resonant because the other Lucy poems will show that she does die. And so this becomes a kind of a premonition of that. But it's also an example of the way the Romantics uh, create poems out of those spontaneous emotions and then recollect them and put them into a poem. All right, uh, one more of these I'd like to look at. She dwelt among untrodden ways. She dwelt among untrodden ways beside the springs of dove, a maid whom there were none to praise and very few to love. A violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown, and few could know where Lucy ceased to, when Lucy ceased to be, but she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. All right, again, this is like the time before her death and the time after in the poem. Um, but it, she's dwells dwells among untrodden way or dwelt uh, from the beginning. She's in the past tense in this poem, uh, and untrodden ways. Nobody has walked here. She's kind of completely out there, isolated in the woods. Uh, no one to praise her. Very few, to, uh, just him presumably, to love her. And then he gives a couple of of metaphors for what she was like in the second stanza. A violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye. All right, so get the picture of it. A stone covered in moss and a little purple-violet flower that you can't quite see, but is you know if, if you look at it just right, you see this splash of color in this kind of mossy stone. Or fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. So she's, uh, she's singular. She's the, the, the one little 
uh, uh, violet in the field of mossy stones. She's the one star that's shining in the sky. Uh, and there she lived unknown because she was in untrodden ways. Nobody knew. But she is in her grave and oh, the difference to me. Uh, so that loss, that poignant sense of loss that he feels, and you know, quite a lot of poetry uh, is there are two of the most common themes in poetry are love and death. And these Lucy poems are very much love poems and poems about death, about dealing with, with that. And uh, Wordsworth finds those kind of beautiful images, the, the violet by a mossy stone, the, the, the single star shining in the sky, to help embody those emotions and give them a, a real uh, force, and also the kind of poetic delight he talked about in the preface to Lyrical Ballads. All right, well, we're going to continue with a little bit more of Wordsworth next time. I'd like you to read uh, several uh, poems. Uh, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, My Heart Leaps Up, and uh, The Ode, Intimations of Immortality, and then two brief sections on from uh, The Prelude. The Prelude was the kind of great epic work of Milton's career that he never finished. It was published posthumously after his death. But it's kind of his poetic autobiography. And I'd like you to look at the section in Book 5 about the boy of Winander and the drowned man. And then a section in Book 7 that talks about the blind beggar and Bartholomew Fair. And in all of these poems, I want you to think about the the uh, things we've been talking about today. How are the themes that we've seen in Tintern Abbey uh, or the Lucy poems uh, uh, carried out in these other poems? How are they? How are they different? Uh, how? What kinds of emotions is he recollecting, recollecting in tranquility? Uh, and how is uh, how is he creating that sense of of delight and spontaneous emotion in the poems? Uh, so we'll be looking at that for next time. All right. Well, I thank you kindly for your attention, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>